This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors, such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors, are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. These people there will do anything and everything for him. He lives a beautiful life. He has beautiful chairs, beautiful silverware, all kinds of very fancy rabbi, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. And the people in his community have nothing. The boy and the rabbi spent a lot of time together. He told me a lot, I'm special, I'm holy, uh, I'm smart and all that. But he uses those lines for everyone to get them to listen Today, Marcus has no trouble using the word brainwashing. He couldn't care less about any of the God stuff. It's a tool for him to get people to follow him. And once they follow him, the God part falls away and he has pure mind control over the people. This is Decoding Cults and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to Live to Ho, Part 2. In our last episode, we looked at Shlomo's early life, how Levtahor started, and we ended the episode where Shlomo was released from prison. This week, we will be continuing the story after his release. I am going to give a blanket trigger warning for this episode, as it contains many elements of child abuse, so please take care when listening. I would like to apologize again in advance if I mispronounce any of the Jewish or Yiddish words. Upon his release in 1996, Shlomo moved to Monzi in New York to run a yeshiva there. Monzi is around 65 kilometers or 41 miles north of Brooklyn. There's not a lot of information around Shlomo's time in Monzi. I think that he may have been keeping his head down. By the year 2000, Shlomo's visa was revoked and he was deported back to Israel. In some reports, it is said that this was because of his felony conviction, but there were four years between his release and his deportation, so I am unsure what popped up to make this happen. If you recall from our previous episode, he was not exactly welcome in Israel either, as he was still worried about his Islamic ties. Well, only six weeks after he got home, he fled again, this time to Canada. In Canada, Shlomo only had a visitor's visa, and in an effort to stay in the country, he first tried to become a Canadian citizen. This was not approved when they found out about his conviction in the U.S. Then, in 2003, 
he went before the Refugee Commission and claimed that he was escaping persecution by Israeli authorities, partly because of his anti-Zionist beliefs. Shlomer provided so-called proof in the form of witnesses and documents, but no one ever actually questioned the authenticity or the truth thereof. They recorded a video with Shai to testify in Shlomo's defense on the question of his conviction, and he of course stated that Shlomo was blameless. The CBS news channel, however, found out from Shai that he had been paid to make that video, and that he had indeed been kidnapped by Shlomo. The spokesperson for the group at the time, Uriel Goldman, even testified that he had been a member of the Israeli Defense Force and he was tasked to infiltrate the group and spy on Halbrand to help make a case for his arrest. He testified that he was so taken by the rabbi that he decided to join the group instead. The Canadian government granted Shlomo asylum. Just for interest's sake, when Uriel was asked about this in a CBS News interview a few years later, he stated, quote, I really don't want to talk about that because it's a very... I know that Israel is watching very carefully. I think you can understand. I don't want to receive a, one day a bullet from a Mossad agent or something like that. End quote. When the interviewer pushed to know if it was true or not, he never really answered the question. Shlomo and his followers settled in a small town called St. Agatha de Mons, which is around 106 kilometers or 65 miles north of Montreal, a province in Quebec. According to laurentides.com, St. Agatha de Mons has many attractions and activities for both summer and winter, including beaches, camping grounds, hiking, skiing, and skating on the lake. Here, the leaders of Lev Tahor became more involved in the day-to-day, paying everyone's rent and buying everyone's food. These leaders were Shlomo's trusted inner circle. They consisted of Uriel Goldman, Maya Rosner and Nachman Halbrands, who's one of Shlomo's sons. During their time in Quebec, Shlomo steadily implemented even more rules. The first of these was that each member, old and new, had to sign an oath of allegiance to Shlomo. They had to subjugate their soul, spirit and will to the leader of Lev Tahor. Additionally, all of the followers had to agree to throw away their physical needs, including eating and sleeping, until they fulfilled the desires of the leader. We can see here how Shlomo is moving away from religion and basically making himself the authority to which the followers need to exalt. Those who joined the group had to forego their secular names and adopt Hebrew ones. We also know that changing a person's name is a method of thought control according to the Byte model. Whenever Shlomo held a meeting or a prayer, each man who entered the room first had to go to him and kiss his hand before they could sit down to start the meeting. Shlomo's aides were not allowed to have their back to him, so when they left a room that he was in, they needed to exit it backwards, facing him. Talk about having an inflated ego. When the men and boys prayed, they needed to do it longer and louder than normal. 
they would need to say the words very slowly and loudly, even shout them at times. Usually, in more orthodox communities, these prayers last around 45 minutes, but at Lev Tahor, they could go on for two hours. Like the Bible, the Torah has the spare the rod verse. Of course, this was implemented at the yeshiva. When the boys would not listen in class or do what they were told, they would either be hit with a wire hanger, a wooden baton, belts, even fists. They would also be pinched and slapped. Point four under behavioral control on Dr. Hassan's bite model states. Control types of clothing and hairstyles. And Shlomo did just that. From the age of three, the males had to shave their heads once a week, but were not allowed to trim their beards or their payot, which is like the locks or sideburns on the side of their face. Those who wore glasses even needed to wear the same type of frames. They were also made to take a daily ritual bath, which in itself isn't bad, but the water for this bath had to come from a natural spring or river and should be fresh and unadulterated. The female followers of Lev Tahor, however, needed to wear black shrouds similar to burkas, covering them from head to toe, only their faces were exposed. And when I say toe, it's not even ironically, because their feet needed to be covered at all times, even in bed. This dress needed to be worn from the age of three. They could, however, change it and wear white robes, but only once a week for Shabbat or on holidays. I looked online, and even though these shrouds are not the norm, there are some ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities that are adopting this dress for their female members. Even though the Torah doesn't say that women can only wear black or white, the women in the group claim that color and patterns are not modest enough, and that wearing head-to-toe black is better. In my opinion, it was probably suggested to them, and then they were made to believe that this was their own idea. When adult members would contradict Shlomo, not follow his orders, or if it was found that they were planning to leave, he would diagnose them with a mental illness, mostly borderline personality disorder. He would then treat them with antipsychotic drugs, vitamins, and the Atkins diet. According to the Mayo Clinic, borderline personality disorder, or BPD, is a mental disorder characterized by unstable moods, behavior, and relationships. The cause of BPD isn't well understood. Diagnosis is made based on symptoms which include emotional instability, feelings of worthlessness, insecurity, impulsivity, and impaired social relationships. The treatment for BPD is usually talk therapy, But, in some cases, medications like antidepressants, mood stabilizers, or antipsychotics will be prescribed. As we know, Shlomo was not a qualified psychiatrist, and his so-called diagnoses were absolute nonsense. I mean, he wasn't even an ordained rabbi. According to MDEdge.com, 
if you give people antipsychotics when they don't need it, they could actually cause the symptoms which they are meant to relieve. There were also allegations within the group that he would dose the children with melatonin to keep them compliant. Melatonin is a natural hormone that is produced by the pineal gland, which is located in your brain. This hormone helps to control your sleep cycle. As someone who has major trouble falling asleep, I sometimes use melatonin tablets to help. Knowing how sleepy it makes me, I can only imagine how drowsy those poor kids must have been during the day. In cases where one spouse wanted to leave and the other didn't, or when both spouses wanted to leave, Shlomo would insist that they divorce. Firstly, to ensure that the spouse who wished to stay could, and secondly, to split the couple up, and thus ensuring that one could not influence the other to leave the group, and then he could re-indoctrinate them. Oh, besides self-diagnosing people, Shlomo did not allow his followers to go and seek medical assistance when they were ill. Even when there were complications during childbirth, a mother could not make any decision without Shlomo's say-so, not even taking a painkiller. He also implemented a punishment for women called internal abandonment. If a woman displeased Shlomo in any way, her children would be taken away from her and given to another family to take care of. She would not be allowed any contact with her children at all. In the CBS news feature, it was said that one woman, a mother of eight, was not allowed to see or speak to her children for three whole years. Other forms of punishment for adults included fasting, where they were not allowed to eat for days on end, and deprivation of sleep. We know from the BITE model that deprivation of food and sleep fall under the spectrum of behavioral control. There was another rule, and I could not figure out when it came about or why exactly it was given, but followers were not allowed to go and visit the graves of their dead relatives at all, even if it was their own parents or children. I can only speculate that this may have been put in place to ensure that the followers didn't focus on their grief, but instead kept their attention on the teachings and the rules of the group. I don't know, I just can't wrap my head around this one. Additionally, they would refer to outsiders as hoim, or Gentiles. This was not only in reference to secular people, but any person, including Jews, who did not belong to the group. They, the followers of Lev Tahor, were after all the actual chosen people, and anyone not in the group or who left the group were evil and would go to hell. Here we can clearly see the us versus them mentality which Shlomo implemented to ensure that his followers feared the outside world. Shlomo insisted that all of his followers be married in arranged marriages, and... No surprise here, he would do the matching. Oh, and he would marry underage girls off to men that were a lot older than them. There was one report where a 15-year-old girl, a child, was wed to a man of 30. Reports state that some of the girls who were matched and married were between 14 and 16 years old. In the CBS News report, 
one mother proudly claimed that her daughter was engaged by 15 and had married two months after her 16th birthday. I do have a sneaky suspicion that she was married at a younger age, but they said that it was 16 because the legal age in Canada where a girl can get married is 16. To me, this is still way too young, but that's just my opinion. I did find on jewishvirtuallibrary.org that under Jewish law, the minimum age for a boy to get married is 13, and for a girl, only 12. It does, however, go on to say that the Talmud recommends that a man marry at 18, or somewhere between 16 and 24. I also found on Jewish Link News that Shlomo had claimed that 13 was the ideal age for a girl to get married. Members of the group were encouraged to spy on each other, even inside of families, and report back to Shlomo if anyone broke any of his rules. This obviously caused a lot of mistrust among the followers, which is great for the leader as they can now get the members to self-police. Shlomo insisted that all of the men become scholars of the Torah. The thing is, with all of the men learning and all of the women keeping house, how did they afford homes, clothes, food? Well, they set up a charity, of course. Shlomo and eight of his most trusted followers, his so-called inner circle, set up the Congregation Rimanov and the Society of Spiritual Development. It was reported in the Star that through their two charities, the group had amassed close to $6 million in assets and got hundreds of thousands of dollars in annual revenue through donations. I also think that one of the reasons why Shlomo had chosen to go to Canada was that they have something called child benefit tax, where the government basically gives you money to provide for your child. Now, seeing as the families had up to 10 children, that would mean an income of close to 35,000 Canadian dollars or 471,000 rand a year. One of the most extreme punishments was banishment. If a follower broke the rules, even at times if they did something without Shlomo's permission, like buying a book, you would be told to leave. Now, I know this doesn't equate to physical harm, but if you think that most of these people had only ever known life in this group, they had no social or working skills that would help them in the outside world, down to even speaking the language properly, you would be cut off from friends and family, basically your entire support system. And you had been told for your entire life how evil this outside world was, and now you're basically dropped into this evil place to fend for yourself? I'd be terrified too. Shlomo wrote his first book called Derek Hadzala, which translates to Path of Salvation. It is summarized as an illumination of what is occurring right now in the Holy Land and the approaching erasure of the state and of the magnitude of the danger to each and every one who is found there and resides there and the path of salvation for each one who is found there and resides there and many more important matters. Sure, that's a mouthful. It focuses on the three vows which we discussed in episode one and also the fact that the Israeli state should not exist. 
This book was published by the community, but it is said that there have been many copies distributed throughout the Haredi world. The group all lived in properties very close to each other, and for the majority of a decade, went mostly under the radar. They even got a few more followers, some even coming from Israel to join the group. Then, in 2011, things started to go south for the group in Quebec. The first red flag was raised when two young girls were travelling to Canada from Israel to join the group for one of their holidays called Yamin Nuraim, oh I hope I said that right, which means Day of Awe. Their uncle had become concerned when he had heard where they were going and was scared that they would be married off as soon as they got there. The authorities were alerted and, in a joint effort between the Canadians, Interpol and the Foreign Ministry, the two girls were intercepted at the airport by the Canadian Immigration Office and were sent back to Israel. That same year, the school board had become aware of the fact that the children of the group were not only not enrolled in school, but were not being taught in English or French. I went and looked at the educational laws for Quebec and found that it is compulsory for all children to attend school from the age of 6 to the age of 16. Homeschooling is, however, allowed, provided that written notice is sent to the minister and to the school service centre that has jurisdiction in their area. The person who will be teaching these children must have a learning project which will impart knowledge to the student, foster his social development and give him qualifications by the development of basic skills including literacy, numeracy and problem-solving skills and by the learning of French is submitted to the minister. Additionally, the minister will monitor the homeschooling and evaluate the child's progress. Now, we know from the previous episode that not much attention was given to the so-called secular subjects, let alone French. So, it stands to reason that the authorities were concerned. In my opinion, they may have forgotten teaching the children French and only gave them very little English in an effort to make them dependent on the group and to ensure that they could not ask for help from the outside world. In 2012, Adam Brzezwetsky, an ex-member of the group, came forward and told authorities what had been happening within the group. Danish-born Adam and his wife had fled the group the year before. Adam had spent two years with Lefterhor in Quebec, and he was married to none other than Uriel Goldman's 15-year-old daughter, shortly after he joined. When the group found out about their plans to leave, Adam had been diagnosed, and I use the term loosely, with BPD, and he and his wife were pressured to get a divorce. I'm sure Ural had a lot of influence in this decision, as he was a prominent figure in the group, and he might have been humiliated if his daughter left. Luckily, the pair did manage to get away, and found sanctuary in Denmark. In May of 2012, child welfare and educational officials from the Quebec government went to inspect the community, and what they found worried them immensely. The living conditions in some of the homes was not great, 
and the children were not being given a proper education according to the law. The followers of Lev Tahor were on edge, and it is said on levtahorsurvivors.com that by April 2013, the leader of the group had started to develop a contingency plan in case the authorities would take action or try to remove their children. By June of 2013, even Malka, Shlomo's wife, had fled back to Israel after being beaten by her husband in a circle for speaking out about child abuse. She would claim that even children as young as six months old were not being spared from being beaten. On the 6th of August 2013, 21 members of the Child Welfare Authority went to the house for an inspection. What they found there horrified them. Some of the homes were filthy and crawling with insects. There were between four and five children sleeping in small bedrooms and some on urine-soaked mattresses. Nurses were brought in and found that some of the children were vastly underweight. They also found that a few of the children and even some of the women of the group had fungal infections on their feet, some so bad that they were black. This was most likely due to the fact that women were never allowed to have their feet uncovered. A former member of the group had spoken to the CBS news crew and explained that he had become disillusioned by Shlomo when he saw how lavishly he had lived versus how his followers had struggled just to put food on the table. Again, we can see here that the cult leader lives a much better life than his followers and uses them to gain money and luxuries while they live in squalor. During the raid, some of the children did come forward and explained what had been happening to them in this group. There were allegations of severe beatings and sexual assault. The authorities opened files on 128 of the children and took their findings to the court, where a judge ruled that 14 of the children needed to be removed from the community into foster care for 30 days, where they could be medically and psychologically evaluated. Among the 14 was a mother of 16 and her infant. They were to be placed with Yiddish-speaking Jewish families to lessen the shock of being taken away from the only home they had ever known. You see, as most of the group all lived on one street, most of the children had never even left that street. I can't even imagine having one street be your whole world. But unfortunately, those children wouldn't immediately be taken to safety. The night of 13 November 2013, after the Sabbath had ended, the group put their contingency plan into play. 35 families loaded onto three buses and into six cars to leave Quebec. Each individual had been assigned a specific seat, and once they were all seated, they set off under cover of darkness. This group included the 14 children. On the Crime Beat TV documentary, followers who were being interviewed recounted how they had cheered and sang as they crossed over the border out of Quebec and into Ontario. The group drove 894 kilometres or 555 miles southwest to the rural town of Chatham-Kent. And then 
the group moved into a few bungalows on the outskirts of town. Because the case against the group had made the news, a few reporters both locally and from Israel descended on the small town. The reporters, however, found happy smiling children playing with brand new toys in clean homes. They interviewed some of the followers, who all spoke of how happy they were and that the allegations against them were unfounded. It's my opinion that they put their best foot forward to the media so that people would think that this was just a happy community who just happened to want to live their life according to the rules of the Torah. There were even people interviewed in various articles who had members of their families in the group. Some of these interviewees said that their family members were happy in the community and that even though they did not understand their beliefs, they weren't in fear for their safety or for their mental well-being. Others claimed that it was an abusive cult and that they were fighting to get their family members out. Looking at these contradicting statements from an outsider gave me pause. I think on the one hand, if you toe the line and you are in agreement with this extremely pious lifestyle where all the decisions are made for you from what you can wear down to what you can eat, then I figure you would be happy in a group like this. Even being punished may be okay to you as punishments are being given by someone who you deem to be your ultimate leader or even coming from God. On the other hand, if you constantly question the rules and go against the grain, you will experience even more punishment and find the situation unbearable. One of the big reasons that the group decided to move to Ontario was that their laws on education were different than that of Quebec. Coming from a country where we have one set of laws no matter which town or province you live in, these various laws in various areas in one country sometimes baffle me. The case against the parents went ahead in November 2013 in Quebec, and the parents of the 14 children had been ordered to go back to the state and appear in court, which they obviously didn't. The case was appealed by the group in Ontario in February 2014, and the local judge from Chatham Kent upheld the judgment and ruled that the 14 children be removed from their homes. I think that Shloma realised that regardless of the various laws within the Canadian provinces, he and his followers would not be left alone by the authorities, so they all made plans to flee again, this time to Central America, specifically the Republic of Guatemala. I couldn't find the exact reason why they had chosen the specific country. I do know that according to righttoeducation.org, the minimum age for a girl to get married in this country was 14 and for boys 16 at the time that the group moved there. It has subsequently been raised to 18 for both. I further found on hslda.org that the compulsory ages where children have to attend school in Guatemala is only 7 to 12 years and that there are no explicit laws around homeschooling. The followers left in small groups via Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean to get to Guatemala, but this time it would not be as easy as they thought to leave. I think Canadian law enforcement realised that the group would try to flee again as they did in Quebec, so I believe they kept tabs on the followers' movements. On 8 March, 
Three adults and six children were sent back to Canada after being stopped in Trinidad and Tobago on their way to Guatemala. The next day, an 18-year-old mother and her infant were found in Calgary, which is about 3,100 kilometers or 1,900 miles west of Chatham-Kent. The young lady was arrested and her and her baby were taken back to Ontario. But, despite some of the arrests, many followers managed to make their way to Guatemala. In our next episode, we will continue the story in Guatemala. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Please invite your family and friends to listen too. If you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can leave a comment if you want to as well. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.